Coming at you from the We Desert yeah. Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to the Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 38 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. I'm Austin Statton, joined alongside Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. And guys, we have an exciting episode ahead of us today. We've got a great interview with Tyler Sober from GeekWire.com. And Diamond Leung, who is the expert for the Golden State Warriors, and also joining us inside the We Desert studio today is Dolores Lozano. So, a packed episode ahead, but before we dive into everything, how has the week been for you two? Uh, it was an exciting week. Obviously, we're just now getting to talking about the uh, national championship games. We, we spoke about the Final Four before, which was kind of a disappointment. The national championship game was everything that the Final Four was not. I mean, it had excitement, had big shot after big shot, big stories, big coaches. It was really exciting and thrilling to be there and sort of a step forward for me in my career. So, uh, I feel like kind of a big shot still. I'm glowing. If you, if you take a look at me, I sort of have this uh, aura of sports professionalism about me. I'm, I'm still glowing from it. So it's been a great week for me. So I wasn't sure if that was sunburn or if that was something else, but I assume you probably didn't get out in the sun much this weekend. So uh, I, I, yeah, that was an amazing game. I actually lucked into a, a sweet ticket uh, like about an hour and a half before tip off. So absolutely amazing experience. But we'll get into that a little bit more. Uh, Jeremy, you had dog problems last week is that right i did have dog problems he was uh misbehaving little Bo was um he was just going rambo and just tearing stuff up around the apartment so uh, i had to take a break uh from the brew to deal with that but otherwise my week was great loved watching the game certainly one of the best games if not the best ncaa national championship game i've ever seen um we'll certainly we'll, we'll get into that um also this week um believe it or not i actually might have a newfound appreciation for baseball after seeing a film uh, called everybody wants some the news from Richard Linklater. Uh, definitely, I'd recommend it. Um, I, I found myself thinking I actually might go to an Astros game this season, which is uh, something different for me. Well, if you want to go to an Astros game, I will be the first person to take you. So um, I'm definitely excited to hear that you are encouraged about baseball now. So now we just have to work on Kevin, but we'll see if that actually happens. And just a reminder to our listeners, this is only the second time that we've all recorded together. And Instead of actually having brews, we have coffee. So definitely excited about this week's episode. But uh, we just want to remind our listeners that if you want to follow our content, you can search for us online. Uh, search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And starting this week, you can also search Weekly Brewcast on YouTube. And Kevin will get into that in just a minute. Also, you can find our content on weeklybrewcast.com. We post all of our episodes there Monday morning. And also, we want to give a brief reminder to our audience to go to our sponsors, We Desserts. Check them out at 3411. And Kevin? Tell us more about We Desserts. That's 3411 Kirby. So it's right in the heart of Houston. If you are in and around Houston doing anything professionally, you probably want some desserts. I mean, let's face it. If you're going to a meeting, you want to make a right impression, bring some delicious desserts. And these are things that are made from scratch that are delicious. I've been kind of sampling on the side, don't tell Penny and Jen, uh, some other desserts around town, and they are really nothing on par with We Desserts. So it's O-U-I. It's French for yes. And uh, it's exactly the sort of atmosphere they have there. Yes, whatever you want. The customer is right. So if you go in and you tell them you're a weekly brew listener, uh, which we're proud that you are, you get a 10% discount and uh, and they love to hear from you there at We. So go in, tell Penny and Jen that Kevin Austin, Jeremy, and Dolores today sent you by and uh, you'll get a 10% discount off of beignets, macaroons, or any other delicious confectionery items they have there. Yeah, my sister and mom actually drive down from the woodlands quite frequently to go to We Dessert, so definitely check it out. Tell Penny and Jen that the guys at the Weekly Brew sent you by. And as always, we have a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to the Weekly Brew. 
So last Monday night here in Houston, the Final Four National Championship took place between Villanova and North Carolina, and my goodness, it was a remarkable game. Villanova, of course, won 77-74 to with a last-minute three-point shot hit by Chris Jenkins to give Villanova their first championship since the 1980s, and I was just shocked by you know the back-and-forth of the game, how close it was, and just to me, how memorable, how much of a memorable moment it actually was. And uh, both myself and Kevin were there actually at the game. Kevin was covering it. I was there as a fan. And also our guest, Dolores Lozano, was at the game as well in attendance. And I, I guess before we get started, uh, just for you two specifically, what was it like covering the game as a member of the media and just, uh, you know, kind of having that epic ending, you know, 77-74 with two remarkable shots in the last 10 seconds? especially after how porous the games were on Saturday. Well, I uh, had to rewrite uh, very quickly because I had sort of a story worked up, written up, and then North Carolina hit the shot, and uh, I thought, okay, for sure. I think it was Marcus Page hit that shot, and I thought, okay, they're definitely going to win this. They've come back from 10 down in the last five minutes. This is absolutely going to be a North Carolina game in overtime. They have all the momentum. Everyone on the North Carolina bench thought that they were going to come back and win that game, and so I'm already furiously writing another lead, and then all of a sudden Chris Jenkins comes down and hits that shot after getting the pass from uh, Archie Diacono, I believe is how you say his name. Right, and uh, they call him Archie, which is good because his name is complex. But uh, so my, my entire story was thrown out again, and I appreciate your compliments on my story. The reader should go to yourhoustonnews.com, search Kevin Cook, and um, not the Kevin Cook that is a rapist in Columbus. Um, there is a if you if you search my name on my own. Uh, organization's website. The first thing that comes up is some guy named Kevin Cook who's a rapist. But that's not me. But search for you would not, you would not be on this podcast if that was you. We have a strict zero tolerance policy. We'll get into that too. We'll talk about Baylor in a bit. But um, but yeah. So I was I was thrilled to be there. I mean, I was the epitome of happy to be there guy. Like it's you know I haven't been doing this for HCN that long. Um, I've been a stringer at other points in the past, but uh, only been a full time sports reporter for what like eight or nine months something like that. So I was I was pleased to be there and um, sort of put in my place. Dolores, you were sitting right next to me. Those not what not great seats they weren't great seats so I kind of I'm like the queen of finessing um so I was actually able to watch the game the national championship game from courtside how I got there I don't know maybe I won't disclose that information um but I was actually really surprised uh that Chris Jenkins made that buzzer beater shot and I was right there when it happened, so it was just an unbelievable experience. How were you right there? You were sitting right next to me. Why didn't you text I me moved. or something? There wasn't any more seats, but um, yeah, it was really awesome to experience that courtside right in front of me. So This is why you just got a promotion. I'm still doing yeah. the same job. <laughs> Kevin, I think uh, Dolores just like one up to you a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Might be because I'm a woman too, so I don't want to use that. Yeah, I'm really good at networking. <laughs> well, I will say that a few years ago in, in 2010, when uh, the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight were actually hosted in Houston, uh, Baylor played St. Mary's in the Sweet 16 game, and then they played Duke in the Elite Eight game. And we won't get into that Duke finish. I still think Baylor got robbed with that bogus charging call against Quincy AC. But anyways, we had terrible tickets for that game. I mean, we were in the student section, which was in the end zone. Like, you, you couldn't see anything. Well, before the game started, I actually went up to uh, my old boss who I saw working there, uh, Heath Nielsen. He is the uh, the PR guy for Baylor Athletics. He was sitting courtside, you know, doing his job working. And so we got there plenty early. So we decided to walk down there and there was nobody sitting down. So we decided, all right, let's just go ahead and sit down in the third row. So we sat courtside for the entire game, set, set next to Coach K's wife, actually had better tickets than Chris Brown who was at the game. Uh, and then, you know, everyone was seeing us on CBS and they were like, how the heck did you get these tickets? And 
you know, we lied to him. We said, oh, yeah, my dad totally got him from work because we didn't want other people to actually do it. But, you know, kind of going back to that national championship game, I had alluded to it in our intro that I actually lucked into a ticket. It was about 6.15 on uh, Monday evening when I had gotten home from work, and I got a text message from my friend Mary Beth, and she was like, hey, friend, I haven't seen you in a while, uh, but we have an extra ticket to the national championship game tonight. And, you know, I had previously made plans with my roommate. We were going to go to, like, a sports bar, grab some food, watch the game, and probably have a better vantage point than you had, Kevin. And But, you know, I, I was kind of contemplating it, and I was like, you know, do I really want to deal with that mess, you know, traffic, get home late? You know, I just got back from Europe, kind of tired. I was like, it's a national championship game. I was like, I don't care where you're sitting. It's, you know, you're in the building. And it turns out that it was like a standing room only suite ticket. So we were sitting, you know, perfect view of the court. I mean, we were a little high up, a little far away. But when Marcus Page hit that shot completely off balance, you just knew that North Carolina was going to win that game. I mean, they had come back from a 10-point deficit, made the game you know, that much closer. And then Chris Jenkins, you know, with four seconds left, they go down the length of the court. He hits that three-pointer. And you just know right when he releases it that it's going to go in. And, you know, you start seeing fans throw stuff up in the air, the fireworks going off. And I was recording that on my phone. And, you know, I've watched it back several times. And just you hear all this yelling going on. And and for me, it was definitely one of my top five favorite sports memories of probably all time. And just the magnitude of that game was Remarkable, But, uh, Jeremy, we'll get to you in just a second on kind of, you know, I, I know you weren't at the game, but you also experienced it watching at home. Uh, but, but Kevin, you know, what was that experience f- for you? Just I know you're a huge fan of basketball, but to see an epic finish like that, arguably you could say the best finish since – uh, you know, your U of H Cougars lost back in the 1980s. I don't want to get into it. Yeah, the first buzzer-beating game-winning shot since 83, the North Carolina uh, State Wolfpack, the uh, survive in advance, Jimmy Valvano. I stayed over and over again. I hate how Houston is a footnote to someone else's success story in that story. But yeah, I'll say that's the biggest difference between being in the media and covering that game versus being a fan and being there. Because when that shot drops through the bottom of the net the game's over for all the fans and they're immediately cheering throwing not beer because i don't think they were selling beer there but whatever drinks they were i saw some beer snuck in let's be real the villanova fans in front of me had some beers there but they were throwing up these seat cushions if you if you look there were these huge seat cushions and i swear to god they were throwing them up so high in the air and they kept coming down around me so everyone else is celebrating having a great time they sort of their evening has begun i'm at work i gotta turn my story in i've really only started to work when the game is over so my computer got hit i got hit i was trying not to be furious. I was trying to keep in my mind, like, okay, these people are celebrating, having a good time, just let them enjoy themselves. Uh, But I couldn't, I really was getting pelted by things and and getting furious as it was happening. Yeah, I was pretty furious too. I didn't get out of there till like 1am. Well, Dolores, was that because it took you so long to get, you know, make your way to the exit from courtside? It took quite a while to get to the exit. You do look very awestruck. Right? No, I actually I watched the game on TV, which actually I feel like I actually saw more than you guys did in <laughs> there. Um, so uh, I got to see all the reactions in real time of all the players, all the coaches, what fans were on the sideline. Um, Denise didn't see you, Dolores, so I kind of wonder if you were actually there. So I mean, I have a video to show oh, you. Okay. I was already pulling it out since you missed the experience live. Right. Wow. I'm gonna keep going here. Um, so yeah, I, I a really amazing finish. I, you know, it, it really evoked a visceral response in me, not having anything personally invested in either of these teams, just seeing the last five minutes 
of that game was just incredible. It's something that uh, any sports fan, regardless of what team you're actually rooting for, you can get into. Um, I, I, I could not be happier for Villanova and really just the way that this tournament finished out, especially given the Final Four and the way that that pans out. Um, yeah, I, I, I loved loved this game from start to finish. I learned a lot about Philadelphia fans. I mean, these are the same fans that famously pelted Santa with batteries, D batteries, I believe. Uh, and so there was certainly um, hints of that in the way that they celebrated the victory at NRG Stadium. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's dangerous when Philadelphia wins anything. Yeah, what a sports year for Houston. I mean, this is so much better than the 2011 National Championship when both UConn and Butler couldn't hit a shot to save their lives. I mean, such an epic finish. Uh, but, you know, congrats to Villanova for coming out with that win. But I'm kind of curious for you guys. That was probably one of the best games that I've ever been to. Uh, you know, I definitely rank it up there in my top five. I'm not sure where it fits necessarily. But uh, I guess two things. First, a lot of people were saying that this was the greatest NCAA game of all time. But one of the issues that I had with making that statement is they were, um, you know, looking at games in like the 1970s and 1980s, trying to, you know, rank them. But a lot of these sports writers that were trying to rank them weren't even alive during that time. So I, I was like, I don't know that you can really truly rank those games, uh, you know, if you weren't there. And so with that being said, I'm curious what are the greatest games or greatest sports moments that you've actually experienced in person? And Kevin, we'll go ahead and start with you. So Villanova pulled off a historically great run through the through the tournament. Uh, 58.4% for the tournament. I think they shot 58.3% in the finals. So, I mean, very consistent there. But for me, nothing's better than watching Tom Herman holding the trophy, the team celebrating around him. I still got great art from that. I think I wrote something like 16 articles over the course of the Peach Bowl week uh, just because I was so inspired by being there and also by the victory that happened afterward. Kyle Postman, that was a great article I wrote, if I say so myself. It was received very well, at the very least. And, uh, and so that, for me tops all of that because I'm in another city. I already hate traveling. Everyone knows that. Um, and so really nothing would have, like Orlando, when I went to Orlando to watch the AAC tournament and U of H lost to Tulsa, or Louis of H lost to, uh, it wasn't Tulsa, it was Tulane. Yes, Tulane. Forgettable. Um, that was heartbreaking in exactly the way that the Peach Bowl victory was exhilarating. So for me, watching that, being there, I wasn't on the sidelines necessarily, so I didn't have that uh, Dolores Lozano view of it, but I certainly enjoyed the experience and that for me is my greatest a sports attendance moment, I think. Jeremy, what about you? Uh, you know, I, I know that baseball is obviously not on your list, <laughs> but in terms of games you've actually attended, what tops your list and why? I'm having to go down to the one at the bottom of the list, probably the Texans Jaguars 43 37 overtime win, where Matt Schaub, instead of throwing five interceptions, threw five touchdowns um, and led Houston to one of its greatest victories that I was ever to be in attendance for. It was in Houston here. Um, I don't remember much from the game other than the fact that I walked away actually feeling good about the Texans, which I think that was the last time that that happened. So um, other one, the 2011 Baylor OU, Robert Griffin's Heisman moment, uh, kind of that last minute um, touchdown to uh, Terrence Williams, I think, uh, that won us the game and really solidified Robert Griffin's case for the Heisman. I think the number one, though, if I'm thinking of all-time moments that I've experienced personally, um, was the 35-34 overtime win against Texas A&M in 2004. It was my freshman year at Baylor. Um, crazy game. And I, for, for our audience that doesn't know, Baylor was terrible back then. I mean, we, uh, beating A&M, we ended a 13-year uh, skid. Um, we, had, we ended an 11-game skid in the Big 12. Um, and it was, it was just an amazing experience. I was actually in the front row of the Baylor line. It was the student section, and I rushed out onto the field as soon as uh, that two-point conversion was made, and I actually got a piece of the goalpost. Uh, we took the goalpost down to the president's house, President Robert Sloan, 
um, who was the president of Baylor at the time, and he actually got some hacksaws out of his garage, and we cut up the goalpost right there at his front lawn. So just an incredible moment to, to be a Baylor fan, uh, not to mention just a sports fan in general, but um, definitely the most memorable that I can think of. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't there for that game. I was uh, a senior in high school at the time, but you know, everyone that I know that was in college at that game, it just reminds me how remarkable that moment was. And you specifically mentioned uh, the Texans game against the Jaguars. Interestingly enough, the day before was when Baylor upset that number one ranked Kansas State to end their national championship bid. Uh, so that was another memorable game. But uh, Dolores, you know, you attended the national championship game. You attended the uh, U of H game with Kevin at the Peach Bowl. But I'm kind of curious, what game for you is the most exciting game that you've experienced and why? Um, I would say the most exciting game was in 2014 when Baylor raced a 21-point deficit in the final 11 minutes against TCU. So it was a really great game to experience, and I actually rushed the field. So it was great, and most Baylor fans don't like TCU. So it was, like, great. Unfortunately, we didn't beat them last year, but uh, it was a really great game to experience and rush the field for the first time at what's the new stadium, McLean Stadium. So it was really awesome. I'm curious, what is the sporting event that you would most have liked to have been in attendance for? And let's restrict it to ones that you're alive for and would be able to remember. So you can't go back to like the 60s or anything like that. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and answer first. I'll answer your question in just a second, Kevin, but I'm going to go ahead and answer first my top sports moment. Um, you know, I think a lot of these have already been stated, like national championship game, that's up there in the top five. The Baylor OU, that's up there in the top five. Baylor TCU, that's up there in the top five. There are two Astros games that are also in my top five. One is the 2004 uh, National League uh, championship series in which Jeff Kent hit a walk-off three-run home run. Uh, the place just went nuts. Minute Maid Park, I mean, it took us 45 minutes to get from our seats to our car, and it took us another hour and a half to get from our car to 59 so we could head back to the Woodlands. But just, you know, it, it was so electric, that atmosphere. But the top sports moment for me was that we haven't already discussed. It was probably last year, and it was another last-minute decision. Uh, my roommate, uh, Andrew Cooley, who we had on the show last week, uh, we had decided uh, last fall on a Friday night that, you know, none of us had anything going on. So we were just going to go check in an Astros game at the last moment. So we bought nosebleed seats, like, I don't know, like $5 tickets when we got there. Of course, we didn't sit in those seats. Uh, first, we moved into the outfield, then we moved behind home plate, and then eventually we moved behind the third base dugout. But Mike Fires, who was recently acquired from the Milwaukee Brewers, was making one of his starts for the game. And uh, it turned out that he threw a new hitter. And it was the first no-hitter that the Astros has had since, you know, they combined to have uh, six pitchers throw no-hitter against the New York Yankees. I believe it was in 2001 or 2002, but the atmosphere for that game was just simply remarkable. And to be able to witness uh, history like that in person, I mean, granted, there was not as much on the line in terms of like a championship or a huge win against a rival. It was just remarkable to see a pitching feat like that. Uh, so that would probably be my uh, one of my top sports moments. But Kevin, to specifically answer your question, and I'm going to assume it's probably going to be the same answer that you're going to have. Uh, that would be the uh, national championship game in 2006 between Texas and USC. I mean, Vince Young against, you know, Reggie Bush and Matt Leiner. I mean, that game had it all. I mean, there were, I, I believe, 30 or 40 NFL guys on that team. And it pitted the number one team in the country against the number two team in the country. They had been that way the entire season. And, you know, typically when there's a game with that much hype, it does not live up to expectations. But Vince Young on that fourth down and six late in the fourth quarter, getting that touchdown and just, uh, you know, having the highlight of his career, because obviously he didn't do much in the NFL. But, uh, you know, for... Uh, you know, everyone in the state of Texas that had, you know, followed Vince Young, whether you're a Longhorn fan or not, I think that game was just 
remarkable to watch. And, you know, he grew up in uh, Vince Young played high school football here in Houston. So he was essentially a legend, you know, his freshman, sophomore year at, you know, Madison High School. And just to see him will that team to a national championship at the Rose Bowl, like the granddaddy of them all. I mean, that was just a remarkable game. And if I could have been there for it, I would have been there. But instead, I was actually watching the game with you. Um, I would have loved to have been at the Spurs-Warriors game to watch the Spurs lose at home. So that was a pretty good game. No, I'm not a Spurs fan at all. How can you not love the Spurs, though? I mean, that's a team of, of wily veterans, young, exciting talent, one of the greatest coaches of all time. What is the hate about the Spurs? They're in San Antonio. We live in Houston. We hate everything in San Antonio. We hate, we hate everything in Dallas. Come on, Kevin. Everyone knows us. I don't like I don't like Dallas. I went to a Dallas game on Friday, so I watched the Mavericks, and I was actually booing them because I'm Are you there as a fan. professional? No. no. Okay. <laughs> I, was gonna I, was say not, I was not there as a professional. <laughs> Do you ask no, 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 no. I was there just as a fan. <laughs> okay. That's air quotes. You can't see air quotes on a podcast. Yeah. It's air quotes fan. Yeah. Let's admit, Dallas tears are the sweetest. I, I, I'd argue that Aggie tears are the sweetest. But, Jeremy, <laughs> what is one game that you wish you would have attended? Okay. One game I wish I could have attended. Um, obviously, when the Rockets won their first national championship um, against the Knicks. Yeah, I, I wish I could have been there. I was, uh, of course, I don't know what, nine at the time. Um, but I wish I could have been there for that final game against the Knicks. Um, just an insane experience. Uh, of course, I got to watch it on TV, but um, nothing could rival actually being there, especially as a little kid. It's a very fascinating conversation there, you know, discussing our you know top sports moments, recapping the Final Four. But we're going to get into this briefly, and it really upsets me that we have to talk about this again. Uh, a few weeks ago on the podcast, you'll recall that we had Paul Catalina on from ESPN Central Texas, and he spoke about, uh, you know, the ongoing um, in- investigation and in- in- mishandling of uh, sexual assaults at Baylor University. And uh, this past week, Sean Oakman, who uh, you might remember from several memes uh, two years ago at the Cotton Bowl, uh, he's a 6'8 defensive end that played at Baylor. I believe he weighs like 290, huge guy, very physically uh, fit, active. Uh, He was projected as a first-round pack last year in the NFL draft. He He kind of slid a little bit in his draft stock this year. He's projected to go somewhere in the middle rounds. But anyways... On Thursday of this week, I believe he was um, accused of sexually assaulting a female uh, in the Waco area after coming back from a nightclub, Scruffy Murphy's, and she immediately went to uh, Waco Police. I guess they had a a rape kit performed, and Waco Police is currently investigating. Uh, So no charges at this moment at the time that we are recording have been filed. Uh, But it's, to me, just absolutely disheartening to see uh, this is the third uh, Baylor football player or former Baylor football player that has been accused of rape within the last three years. And I hate that the only time that we get to talk about Baylor football is, you know, because of misconduct off of the field. And, and to me, that's just disappointing. And uh, Dolores, you had actually mentioned to us last week via Twitter that you wanted to discuss this topic uh, specifically. And I guess you kind of have a, a unique perspective. You were once a student athlete at Baylor. You were also a manager for the acrobatic and tumbling team. What was your experience around you know, working from athletics? And did you feel that it was a culture that uh, almost allowed this to happen? Or was it did you when you were working in athletics and as a student athlete did you feel safe as you know a female being around some of these athletes um sometimes you don't feel safe especially when you're outside of well when you're off campus especially at a a, quote-unquote a nightclub (laughs) nightclub uh scruffy murphy's but i did notice a lot of things get brushed under the rug and a lot of females that didn't express themselves after being assaulted by 
um, a football player. I actually experienced a domestic violence issue and um, a lot of battered victims stay with their batters and I feel like, okay, I, I did, I was one of those battered victims that stayed and it actually took me about a month to talk about my experience and I talked to the sports chaplain and I also spoke to counselors at Baylor about my situation and um, the domestic violence incident happened with a football player. Nothing happened. He talked to President Ken Starr and he, st he was still on the team afterwards. So I think it's really hard for women to talk about their cases, whether it's a rape case or domestic violence, because football players aren't getting reprimanded for their actions. Sexual assault happens everywhere, and it's a, that's just a sad fact of college and, and of the society that we sort of constructed and the way that we treat women is that, you know, there are lots of cases of sexual assault and violence. However, of course, Baylor reported no cases for four years, tried to cover it up. You've said you're, um, and, and we've seen other women have the same thing to say. A lot of women don't come forward because they know nothing's going to happen. So it's like, why tell my story? Why relive those moments when you're not going to do anything about it? Because most schools, most coaches only care about these guys putting points on the field, they don't really consider the victims and what they're doing. And so what is it about Baylor that makes it such a toxic environment for the women that really need need help the most, the, the women that the university should stand behind and support who are getting none of that? Something to do with it being a religious university, I wonder. Like the idea of not reporting sexual assault, is it because there's a religious background at the university that they feel more ashamed of or like it shouldn't happen here and that in turn creates that kind of, uh, kind of an atmosphere? I actually felt like I was responsible for getting hit by my ex-boyfriend. So it's like I didn't want to talk about it because they always make the victim feel like it's their fault. So like in some cases where rape, it's like, oh, so you were drinking at Scruffy Murphy's. It was probably consensual. But most cases, it's not. And you can't be, you can't consent if you're drunk. That's first of all, that's a fact. So I, the, all the slut shaming and victim shaming that goes on is, is reprehensible. But I, I, it seems to me, and we've talked to Paul Catalina said that, you know, it's not necessarily worse at Baylor in terms of the actual events that are occurring, but the cover-up's always worse than the crime. In this case, hard to say that because there are actually, you know, victims here. But, but, but the, really the cover-up seems to be worse at Baylor, Baylor responding to this so poorly. And I guess this will be a test for, for how they're, um, how they're able to respond now that there's a federal lawsuit pending against them and it's happened again. I think heads need to roll at Baylor, and I don't know that this is necessarily, I think that this is more than just an athletic problem. I, I, you know, I've, I've, I've met with coach Biles. He's a stand-up guy. I know Phil Bennett, great coach. Problem is, I don't know that they're doing a great job of actually disciplining these student athletes. And I think Baylor is at the point now where they're a winning football program. You know, they're a perennial top five, top 10 team. Whereas 10 years ago, if you stole a cell phone, you were kicked off the team. Uh, but you, you could do that when you were a three and eight team or a four and 12 team or whatever the records were. But the problem is, is Baylor has so much at stake now in terms of finances. You know, they just built a, a $300 million stadium. And I think that they realize that football is now the face of the university. And that wasn't the case 10 years ago. And my biggest issue is Ken Starr right now. Ken Starr, the president of Baylor, he's done absolutely nothing to try to prevent these, you know, crimes from happening. When, when, whenever a rape does happen, Baylor is so late to respond from a PR perspective. I think they've completely mishandled this from a crisis communications perspective. And as an alum, it just sickens me to see that there is so much inaction that is being done. And 
it really ticks me off that you see this with, with Sean Oakman. Now, granted, he wasn't part of the football team. He's already graduated. He still represents Baylor. You know, he's a recent alum. He's still living and training in Waco, Texas, while he prepares for the NFL draft. But it really pisses me off to see this constantly happening. And I think heads need to roll. I think someone needs to lose their job over this to show that, you know, Baylor is actually taking this seriously. But we'll see if anything happens. I'm not convinced that it will. Uh, yeah, this is really a shame. From a fan's perspective, I can't think of this next season um, going into it from the first game on, uh, not thinking about this sort of in the back of your mind. Um, it's, it's really just a shame that all this sort of comes out at once. You know, it's, it's like case after case after case, and it just doesn't seem to stop. Um, to the university's credit, they have initiated some action um, in terms of you know investigations and more funding. Uh, Title IX funding, um, and so I, I, I will give them credit, but I think that this particular case is it's more troubling because Oakman was such a visible part of the program, and he, you know, whether you're talking about Sean Oakman memes or all the fanfare over Sean Oakman and some of the other players, I mean, this guy was featured in magazine articles all around the country prior to the season. Um, I, I this is really just a just a shame that this has to it has to end like this. I, I I hope for the best. I hope that the investigation. Uh, takes its course fairly and that, um, you know, justice is served if, if a crime was committed. So I, the whole thing is just a, a mess. And But there was an interesting addition to the signage on the practice field. It says, real men respect women. So now the football players will see that every time they, they enter the practice field. But I think they need to do, the university needs to do more than just put a sign in the practice field. I wonder how invincible Sean Oakman must feel to do this when there's a federal uh, Title IX lawsuit pending against the university. I think it just speaks to the culture that they have there. But it's, uh, it's yeah, great putting up a sign. Where was the sign before all this happened? This is a late response, like Austin said. Yeah, I think it's a completely late response. And I, I will say that there are several of the football players that have been very, very vocal, especially since the last year with Sam Ukuwachu that have been tweeting, you know, it's on us. And I think that they actually do mean it. Uh, you know, some, some of these athletes are pissed off that their university and their football team has this black eye. And I think that it's going to take those leaders, I think it's going to take those student-athletes to step up because I'm not sure that the coaching staff or the university officials are actually going to do anything. So I think it rests with those players actually take a stand and say, hey, we don't want this reputation to be, we don't want this to be our legacy. And uh, I hope that Baylor actually does take the right steps. And I know there are student-athletes there that are good people. Uh, and it really upsets me that, you know, this isn't every single student athlete that's doing this. It's a handful that are ruining the reputation, but that's the same thing that happens in every walk of life. You know, it's always those small bad eggs that uh, give a reputation, a poor reputation for everything. But yeah, I, I think it was a late action by Baylor to put that sign out there. And, and, and to me, it's just a frustrating situation that we have to talk about this again on the podcast, but so who's got to go? Is, is it Art Browse? Is it Ken Starr? Both? They're not, they're not going to let Art Browse go. I think Ken Starr, there's been rumors a few years ago that he was actually ready to, uh, you know, kind of step down. Um, and they actually renewed his contract. I believe it was two years ago, but, uh, two or three years ago, I had heard rumors that the Regents, you know, appreciated the work that he had done, and it was probably about ready for him to retire. I can see Ken Starr stepping down within a year. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and call it right now. By April 11th, 2017, Ken Starr will no longer be the president of Baylor University. And I think he's going to step down on his own terms, call it personal reasons, or he just wants to retire, spend more time with family and grandkids. But I think that he's going to be pressured to resign as a result of these ongoing rape cases. And I think Art Bryles is a great guy, but he's just trying to change a lot of bad apples and you can't really save everyone so there's 
he has to consider the people that he brings to Baylor and you're not going to save everybody. And consider the people that are threatened when you bring in dangerous people. Because it's not just about the people you're trying to save. It's about the people who are harmed when you fail to do that. Fascinating discussion. And uh, Dolores, we definitely appreciate your unique perspective on this situation. And uh, my hope is that we don't have to talk about this again on the podcast. That Baylor gets its act together and uh, is able to uh, focus more on the football field and developing these student athletes into high quality, you know, characters you know that they can uh be representative of the university both on and off the field and that us jeremy myself and dolores as alums can be proud of you know wearing the baylor letters and just not be ashamed by the ongoing investigations you're listening to the weekly brew while playing in london during the 2016 football season the bills and jags game was streamed live on yahoo now during the offseason it was reported that the nfl was seeking bids to stream games and this past week roger goodell announced that twitter had won the bid and will stream 10 thursday night nfl games this fall now joining us on the weekly brew to discuss this and more is taylor soper a reporter for geekwire.com taylor thanks for joining us this week and with regard to the streaming deal Twitter stock was trading about $50 a share at this time last year, and it closed Thursday afternoon under $17. How did Twitter walk away with this bid, and is this related to the power that Twitter has on game days with the second screen phenomena? Yeah, I think there's a lot that went into this deal. Um, Twitter is being used during games, you know, more than more than a Facebook, even or an Amazon or a Verizon, which were other companies bidding for this. Uh, also, the NFL has had a couple partnerships with Twitter over the past several years. Uh, so that I'm sure played into that. Um, and so, you know, people are already using Twitter as they watch games, um, you know, following journalists, fans, other players uh, to see, you know, what they're talking about. Um, so now it's going to be, you know, nicer for the Twitter user because the game will be right there in their stream. So from a Twitter user standpoint, uh, a nice little at you know, value add. And also Twitter's been struggling to add more users compared to other uh, companies like Snapchat or Facebook. Um, So this is another, uh, you know, try for Twitter to to, uh, grow their user base. I'm curious about the financial deal um, that's involved here because they paid, I guess, just south of $10 million and they're only going to be able to sell local affiliate advertising during the game. So the actual revenue that they'll generate at Red is something like, uh, I think, $6 million, something like that. So you're talking about taking this on with a loss. What exactly do they gain? Is it really going to generate new monthly active users? That's the hope. And I don't, the money part is interesting, you know, but I don't think it's the story here because um, you know, Yahoo paid 17 or reported 17 million for one game last year, and Twitter is now paying 10 million for, or about you know, around 10 million for 10 games. So uh, that's that's a, that's a big difference. So again, I, I don't think it's the money. I think it's yeah, Twitter is Twitter needs more users. Um, but you know, is this is this going to cater to existing users who already use a platform like myself? You know, I'm comfortable with Twitter. I know how it works. I think this is cool. I might watch the game on Twitter, but is someone who maybe your average NFL fan who may not be that tech savvy, but you know has Facebook or, or maybe even Instagram, are they gonna go through the steps to uh, sign up for Twitter, become a user, and maybe you know learn how it works, and maybe they'll become a new user, and and after that a regular user? I think that's Twitter's hope. Um, but again, this is not uh, the only place to watch the game. You know, again, this is gonna be on NBC, CBS, NFL Network. Um, this is not an exclusive deal. I mean, it is for streaming, but not overall. So, you know, if you're comfortable watching on your TV at home, like 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 the traditional way, that you can still do that. 
Um, so that's an important point. Well, it's, so in terms of monthly active users and, and bringing people in and things like that, it feels like a lot of people that love the NFL already use Twitter. So I, I wonder about the overlap there and how many new ones are going to generate. But just in a more general global sense, I'm curious about Twitter because there's been lots of criticism I've been reading about not generating new users, kind of falling. The, the stock price obviously is uh, in, a, in a free fall con- uh, compared to last year. So, uh, you know, I wonder um, – who is on Twitter? Is it just journalists, politicians, like I've heard? I mean, who are the people that are on it most actively? Yeah, yeah. Twitter's an interesting company. You know, it's personally as a journalist reporter, I love it. I mean, it's crucial for my job. Um, but for the everyday you know, person who might not be on it all the time, or just kind of checks it sparingly, you know, there may be, there may be more value for someone to have a to go on Facebook or to use Snapchat, um, you know, you're not really using Twitter all that much to message your friends or to send your parents a message. Um, in terms of who's on, I think it's 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 definitely a news uh, source for a lot of people. Um, they get their news from Twitter versus going to a static website or, you know, reading the newspaper if anyone does that anymore. Um, and I also think one really nice part about Twitter is the whole live event aspect. You know, when, when something's happening, when, when, the news, when news is breaking, uh, you know, you go to Twitter and you'll find out first, you know, the information. So that ties in back to live sports, which is still uh, an extremely valuable thing and, and, and why sports is still so popular. It's live, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and that's where Twitter, you know, really shines, I think, for, for that live uh, that live feeling, you know, when you're watching the game at the bar or at home and you want to know what other people are thinking and saying or you want to join other fans and, and retweet another journalist or another player, um, there's definitely a sense of community there. So um, bringing the live game into that fray is really interesting, actually. So, you know, we don't know what it's going to look like or how the formatting is going to be, um, but it's actually I hosted a panel at a Microsoft event in New Orleans early, earlier this week with the NFL CIO. And, she mentioned that this is going to reduce the friction for the Twitter user in terms of, you know, they don't he or she doesn't have to look up at the TV to watch the game and then go back on their second or third or fourth screen, whether it be their laptop, tablet, phone, and then tweet. So everything's going to be right there. Whether that goes and goes back to your question and of adding more monthly active users, I don't know. I, I'm pretty doubtful on that, but who knows? This could be the start of something big for Twitter or could just be an experiment um, that only lasts a year. So we'll see. In the past, like, 10 years, you've seen, uh, you know, print journalism kind of fade and, and, and moving more to that digital age. And, you know, even more recently, you've seen uh, a lot of people cutting the cable cord and just opting for streaming services like Netflix, like Hulu. Uh, and, and now, obviously, with the NFL making this move, I mean, I, we've we've got to look at Yahoo Sports this past week. You know, they announced that they were going to stream, uh, you know, one baseball game per day on their platform. And I, I'm kind of curious, with Yahoo kind of fading, except on the sports front, you know, they're, they're another company that's struggling as well. Uh, how do you see this playing out in terms of uh, cord cutting? And do you see sports moving into this uh, streaming age? And, you know, is, is that exciting for you as a journalist who covers, uh, you know, ha- who has a pretty cool job covering both technology and sports? Oh, it's definitely cool. And, and as you look at the millennials or the younger generation, um, there are so many cord cutters who are, aren't paying for cable. And so, you know, these leagues, they, they know that. And so they're trying to figure out different ways to reach that consumer. Um, at the end of the day, though, these they, these leagues are locked into these incredibly lucrative broadcast deals, and those those aren't going to go anyway. Those aren't going away anytime soon. So, I think someone asked me yesterday, you know, are Twitter and Yahoo and Facebook going to like take over the NBCs and the Foxes of the world? No, that's I mean, maybe in like 
10 or 20 years that that could happen as the tech companies continue to grow and, and get really big and and people you know shift from traditional broadcast to you know the streaming model but for now um, I think it's very much still an experiment this this the Yahoo deal was an experiment for the NFL the Twitter deal is an experiment um, it's also just another way for the NFL to make money because remember this game is still the NFL is still getting paid big time uh, because the games are still going to be on other other formats. So this is just let's just for the NFL. It's very much see how this goes. You can make some more money. Um, there's also implications for advertising, of course, here too. Um, that that may have played a role as well for Twitter because this NFL CIL also mentioned that uh, sponsors have been pretty happy. NFL sponsors have been happy with the Twitter partnerships that have uh, been inked with the NFL and just you know in terms of who these advertisers want to reach. You know there are, there are a lot of younger people. Uh, using Twitter, so advertising is a whole, whole, whole other part of this. But yeah, it, it goes back to the money, as always, for the NFL. I'm not sure how much you follow college baseball, but here in Houston, uh, we have one of the you know the powerhouses for college baseball in Rice University, and their head coach Wayne Graham turned 80 on Wednesday. And one of the things that he said uh, in an interview uh, with the local radio station was that uh, one of the reasons why he's had such longevity in his career is because he's been able to keep up with technology, you know, sabermetrics, using computers to find statistics and to try to evaluate players, how to you know work on mechanics, so on and so forth. Uh, it was reported by the AP this week that Major League Baseball is going to allow wearable technology uh, for some of their athletes. Now, there are some privacy concerns that deal with that, but how do you see you know not only the uh, Major League Baseball but the NFL and NBA leveraging wearable technology to you know kind of make the game more competitive to help develop and strengthen their athletes? Oh yeah, I mean it's, it's in the very early days, but it's coming. It's going to come in a big way. The big question is, you know, how do these leagues regulate? As you mentioned, MLB did approve uh, two pieces of wearable equipment, which is interesting. You know, it's not this blanket rule where you can wear whatever you want. It's these very specific rules, though you still can't wear a Fitbit or a Jawbone uh, if you're an MLB athlete. But MLB is definitely sees what's going on and is kind of adapting, whereas the NBA, on the other hand, this week, uh, I think Cavaliers point guard Matthew Delvadova, he would always wear this like wrist, uh, I think it was like, a company called Whoop or something, and he would wear this wearable that would track his heart rate, uh, but they just told him to take it off, and he can't wear it anymore. Um, you know, I would, you know, I think the NBA is thinking there is, you know, there's some safety issues there, you know, is it going to hit someone, is it going to hurt another player while you're wearing it? Uh, as you mentioned, there's the data issue, who has the data, who's controlling that, who owns the data, that's a huge, huge question. Is it the leagues, is it the team? Is the individual, you know, if you're tracking someone's heart rate, um, who who gets to see that? Who who should know that? Um, and again, and if you look at the from the fans' perspective, um, this is this also has a lot of implications. You know, how, are you going to present this information on a broadcast? Are we going to be able to know how fast Tom Brady's heart is beating on the goal line uh, on Super Bowl, you know, 51 or 52? versus maybe a Russell Wilson or another quarterback. You know, who's the most nervous quarterback? I mean, we, we will be able to know that um, if these players are wearing, number one, wearing the wearables, and number two, if that information is, you know, siphoned up you know, to the broadcast or online. So, I mean, there's so many questions here, but the fact of the matter is the technology is, is, is getting there quick, quick, you know, more quickly than I think a lot of us thought. 
Uh, it's just a matter of how do the leagues regulate it uh, in terms of the data and who gets to see that and who owns it. As a fellow millennial, I'm kind of you know fascinated uh, with the aspect of you know technology and sports and just seeing how it develops, uh, you know, within the next five to ten years and to see how it actually changes the game. But again, you've got a pretty cool job in that you cover both technology and sports. And uh, you know, for, we appreciate you joining us on the podcast this week. And for those that are interested in kind of following your work, where can they find you online and how can they connect with you on social media? Yeah, you can just follow. Um geekwire.com or Seattle-based technology website. Uh, I cover Pacific Northwest technology, but also kind of on a broader scope, uh, just technology and how it's affecting our everyday lives. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, but I, I would encourage sports fans. This, this It's a really cool intersection because sports fans are obviously so passionate about their teams, about their players, about their coaches. Um, and, and techies are so passionate about about their jobs, about you know where how technology is impacting us. Um, in every way, shape, or form. It's no longer just this, you know, the, the geeks or the techies over there in their corner. I mean, technology is affecting everything we do these days, whether it's driving or, or drones or virtual reality uh, or how we win games um, and how teams make money. Um, so it's just such a cool, cool intersection. Um, and, and, again, I don't think technology is going to re- completely replace uh, a coach or a scout or a referee, uh, you know, that, that may happen, but that's, that's 10, 20, 30 years away. But it is augmenting the sport and, and, and affecting how coaches and players and leagues make decisions, and that, that's crucial. Um, so when you got something that, that, that's powerful and, and can help you make a good or bad decision, I think that's, that's worth following and worth knowing about. And we're seeing that in every league uh, from the NFL, whether it's surface tablets on the sidelines, uh, to the NBA, to the MLB, we're seeing it everywhere. And it's not just the top leagues, you know, it, it spills down all the way to college. You mentioned Rice and the, and the coach there, it's super interesting. Um, and all the way to high school and even to the youth level, you know, how how are these, these younger players, you know, there's, there's the big question of uh, youth football and, you know, are our parents going to have their kids stop playing football? Well, how does technology fit in? That can, te- can technology and sports science help save football? Um, how is scouting going to be affected? How are these teams going to be able to track the younger players? So there's so, I mean, I could obviously, you know, I could talk about this for days, but uh, such a cool space. So yeah, follow <laughs> me on Twitter, Taylor, Taylor underscore sober. Um, it's just such a fun space, you know, and I, I, I used to be a sports reporter and then I, and I became a technology reporter and I would dabble in sports because I just love sports so much. I would write maybe a story a week about some cool technology in the sports world, but now, I mean, it's every day. Um, so it's really picking up and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely fascinating world. And uh, Taylor, we definitely appreciate you taking the time out and joining us this week. And uh, best of luck uh, breaking the news with, uh, you know, future technology and sports and how those two interact in the next, you know, in the upcoming years. We appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, uh, happy to be on now. And uh, let me know if you want me, want me back. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Thanks so much for joining us, Diamond. I uh, really appreciate it. Um, I've always uh, said to people that have followed me that you are the guy for Golden State News. And uh, if they're not following you, then they are an idiot and they need to fix that immediately. So just kind of in a nutshell, I mean, this this season has everybody talking. You've got old-timers weighing in like Scottie Pippen, Horace Grant. Basically, anyone who has an opinion about basketball has something to say about the Golden State Warriors. What is it about this season? Is it the cert- is it the, the quest for the record here? Is it the way Steph Curry is playing? What has everyone talking about this team? I think it's a combination of the two things that you mentioned. You know, the, the Warriors have been so good this season, and they're doing it in such a unique way, you know, with, with, with Steph Curry. Steph Curry playing out of his mind, um, and he's such a unique player that I think a lot of people can't fathom it. You know that they they're not quite sure what to make uh, the Warriors. Um, you know, are they a fluke? Are they 
Are they a team that relies too much on the jump shot? You know, a lot of those theories got disproved last year, and this year the way they've come out and dominated, um, I think it's cause for a lot of people that followed, have followed the NBA for a long time to maybe revisit uh, a lot of their previously held beliefs about how the game works, how the league works, and, and um, you know, I think a lot of the former players really still can't believe the site. And, uh, you know, they have to maybe find a way to kind of explain what's going on. So for our listeners, this uh, interview is taking place on the Thursday, on the eve of, uh, you know, one of the biggest games of the season for them. Obviously, they have to go perfect here the rest of the way to get that 73-win uh, record and, and take over um, the Bull 72-win record. So obviously, that's a crucial game here. But, you know, a lot of chatter um, in the sports blogosphere has been about, has chasing this record been to the detriment of this team's championship chances? And you're around the team as much as anyone. I mean, has that... Has that energized them? Has that pushed them? Has that actually worked against them this season? I mean, what are your thoughts? Um, well, from in recent days, uh, while the Warriors have uh, lost two recent home games, uh, they've talked about how it, uh, it's kind of been a burden uh, for them. You know, all the all the media questions, all the extra attention. Um, it's incredibly mentally taxing to go through an NBA season as it is. And I think you add on the record chase, and um, you know, it, it, it's just another thing. So I think these guys are struggling at this. Uh, at, at this moment that we're speaking and um, you know right now they're trying to find their way back and you know in some ways I don't think they're worried too much about the record it's kind of on the back burner right now because they do have a couple games against San Antonio twice in four days they see each other so um, I think that the record is important to them but it also I think they also understand that hey like it takes a lot to get there uh, not just physically but mentally as well. So a lot of the talk with with the guys kind of sort of piping up about um, about this team. Pippen said that the uh, Bulls would sweep the Warriors, and I think Horace Grant said any of the uh, six championship teams would sweep the Warriors. I mean, you watch a lot of basketball. Is there any truth to those claims? If, if you kind of pit it in like a fantasy sense, you know, this year's team against those teams of yore, uh, how would they stack up? Well, I think. You know, you go back to what Steve Kerr said. It's really difficult to compare, and Steve Kerr would be the one who would know, right, since he has the intimate knowledge of both teams. Um, and I don't think he's wrong in saying that. It's hard to tell because the rules are different. Um, I, I know it sounds like small potatoes, but when you're talking about hand-checking and illegal defense and things back then that, that aren't applicable now, it's, the, the game has changed for sure, uh, in part due to the rules, in, in part just due to the evolution of players as well. So... Um, you know, back then there weren't a whole lot of, uh, you know, three-pointer shot in terms of an emphasis on that. And the Warriors have changed the game with that. They've, they, they've gone out and done it. Um, so, you know, maybe that's a way of not answering the question. I don't know, but it's so difficult to tell. Um, certainly the, the, the 95-96 Bulls are, are well within their right to believe that they would sweep the Warriors. Uh, you know, I wouldn't really expect anything otherwise but just because of how uh, confident that group was. Um, and, you know, I bet you if you ask some of the Warriors, um, they might in their heart of hearts think that too, uh, going the other way. So it's, it's one of those things where I think these guys have the utmost confidence uh, in their own teams, and, you know, it reflects in those comments. But uh, I think it's something that obviously is a hypothetical and we'll never find out. But, um, you know, I think what's been lost is maybe a, kind of a celebration of both teams and, and how good both teams were in, in the respective eras. 
You know, you talk about the the evolution of players. My thought, just as a human being observing sports, is that over time, sports medicine gets better, diets get better, you know, routines uh, in terms of practice become better. Doesn't it stand a reason, and doesn't it pass the eye test that over time teams do get better? I, I don't understand this, you know, reliance on the past or having to prop up the past. It seems like maybe to me, a lot of teams playing in the NBA right now could beat the teams from 95, 96, even though they were historically great in their own era. I mean, is that is that sensible? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, um, the there, there's obviously more of an emphasis on, on ball movement now on, 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 on different kind of more advanced uh, concepts. Um, at the same time, if you look at today's game, there's a, a lack of maybe that dominant big man for a lot of those teams. So it, it would be interesting to see how uh, ball movement versus um, you know, just incredibly dominant big men uh, would work. I think you would have good arguments on both sides as to why each would be successful. But yeah, I mean, the game has changed to where um, you're, you're dealing with more versatile defenders. You're, you're dealing with um, obviously better conditioned athletes, and and you have all these kind of uh, monitors, monitoring systems that that can track every single movement that these guys make. So I think there's more knowledge about the the game and, and physical activity in general. So um, yeah, I mean, I think this. Uh, era would have a, a certain advantage uh, over the old era just from that standpoint. Um, but again, I, I do think it's hard to tell as well. So we're a Houston-based podcast. A lot of our listeners are in Houston, and we are just playing out the stringer. I think we just dropped underneath 50% in terms of like playoff making the playoff odds. So there's not a lot to celebrate here in terms of Houston basketball. One thing a lot of people are talking about is Kevin Durant's free agency. Will we be able to get him? He has some friends on the team. But there's also been some talk about him going somehow to the Golden State Warriors, which I don't even understand. Is that a distinct possibility? I mean, if you had to analyze that situation there, what do you think Kevin Durant's likely to do with his future? Might he become a part of uh, the Golden State organization? I think that's a, it's a pretty decent possibility. Um, I, I, maybe it's hard to hard to fathom, but I think when, when you uh, look at the new salary cap and, and the way teams can create space to, to add new contracts, um, it, it should be interesting what happens. I mean, first of all, he's got to decide that he's going to leave Oklahoma City. And then second of all, he's obviously got to, got to uh, find, a, you know, find a, a, the spot for him. And, and I think he has a lot of control there. But yeah, the Warriors have some moving parts. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens if the Warriors go all the way win the championship, maybe even set the record, do you break up, uh, and they're going to have to do some breaking up, do you break up the, the best team of all time? And, um, you know, the best team of all time can age as well. Um, there's players over 30 that, that uh, you know, might not fit with the Warriors in the ultra-long term, whereas a guy like Durant is a, is a younger star and, and very much would. But um, it should be interesting to see what he first decides, and then uh, I think it'll be – um, you know, an interesting kind of a wild process from there. And speaking of stars, Steph Curry, obviously um, the face of that franchise, and in many ways, uh, kind of the face of basketball for a lot of young fans now. He's certainly um, a very visible figure and, and beloved in some circles, although obviously old-timers have things to say about him, like uh, Oscar Robertson in particular. But uh, a lot of the scuttlebutt is, should we move the three-point line? I, I seem to recall, you know, Tiger Woods, uh, when he was really killing the ball, people were saying, do we need to change golf courses? There's always these kinds of things about that sort of dominance. But, I mean, uh, put it in perspective, is there a reasonable vote for another MVP candidate this season other than Steph Curry? Um, I don't believe so. Um, there, there's already some debate as to whether or not he'll get a unanimous uh, first place MVP, but I don't believe that he will just because there's so many different uh, media members from all walks and all geographic locations uh, voting on this thing. I believe there's a roughly 130 votes 
Um, it'd, it'd be surprising to me. Um, it's kind of one of those things where it'd be surprising to me if he were unanimous, and it'd also be surprising to me who else would not vote Steph Curry. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'm curious to see how that all plays out. Yeah, it's sort of interesting the divergent paths that, that the teams have taken because James Harden last year in here in Houston was a legitimate um, choice for MVP, I think, and you know came in second, and then uh, the players voted him the MVP, and then what a what a ridiculous turnaround uh, it has been this season. But I, I think a lot of ways, uh, I think Jerry Reinsdorf is the one said that organizations win championships, and um, you know obviously Michael Jordan didn't care for that perspective much, but I think that is true. Uh, and the Golden State organization seems interesting, particularly right at the top of the ownership there, uh, Joe Lacob. I mean, what? What's been your experience kind of dealing with them and their mentality? Because they have in some ways revolutionized the game. So what, what are some ways they've been progressive, uh, in your opinion? Yeah, well, um, Joe Lacob is, um, for, for those that aren't familiar with him, is uh, kind of a venture capitalist who, who made his own way, uh, helped build uh, numerous companies and, and made his fortune that way. And really he's brought that kind of same mentality to the Warriors. So they, uh, from, from, from top to bottom, he reimagined uh, the the uh, the way the organization works. He brought in really intelligent, um, hardworking people to work for the organization after so many years of just kind of a downtrodden franchise. Uh, and and he, he he really kind of uh, he didn't necessarily part ways with a lot of the the, the, the current team employees, but he re- certainly reevaluated a lot of them. Uh, there were a lot of people that left the organization, a lot of people that were fired as well. And um, you know. In, in a lot of ways, he's brought in a lot, many different voices that have contributed to what uh, the current Warriors team that you see now. Uh, you know, from uh, from Jerry West, the guy that that's been so well respected, and you know, brought in Bob Myers first as a, um, an assistant GM, and, and who, who eventually rose up to the GM spot, a, a former agent who made his way in in that path, and then now is reigning executive of the year. So he's brought in a lot of loud voices in the room with strong opinions, smart people, and he kind of lets them go at each other. And and, and, and what falls out is uh, really, you know, a a lot of opinions and, and they, in the end, make the call. And, uh, you know, you you saw that come really come to a head um, with the decision not to trade uh, a Clay Thompson for, for Kevin Love. And, uh, you know, that ended up being the right decision. And, I think you're seeing the Warriors benefit from that right now. I think that Steve Kerr, ultimately, the right decision as well, which uh, didn't, I don't know if that was a unanimous uh, choice at the time, but he has proven to be really valuable to this team, as has Luke Walton. And interestingly enough, um, as I understand it, they're both on the ballot this year for Coach of the Year. Is that right? You know, I actually haven't seen it yet. I haven't gone in mine, but that's uh, that's, that's pretty interesting um, because it'll be interesting how that vote plays out, and I'm not certain if that's uh if you can if it's a vote for either or both or how that works it split them into two it's actually uh, they're two separate categories so you cannot vote for both simultaneously so to me it seems like a weird move on the nba's part to not award walton the victories while kerr was gone but then to put them pit them against each other on the ballot right and then they end up splitting votes and um you know and i think i do think like there are a lot of other uh great candidates who are end up going to end up winning that vote uh, but yeah, it should be interesting uh, to, to see how that changes the numbers. Luke Walton, I guess, has been discussed for a number of positions that are likely to open up or are open. And uh, what is your sense, just in terms of talking to the team, being around them? Is he going to stick around for the foreseeable future? I think he's certainly going to, you know, obviously have a lot of interest, and he'll he'll definitely look into it. And I think then then comes the decision. You know, do you leave uh, one of the great franchises um, for what? Obviously, it will be a lucrative job for him. Um, 
that's kind of the question. And I don't think anybody knows right now. I don't think he knows um, because he's going to have to sit down and, and, and listen to, to, to the front office, to, to the management, uh, sell him on these jobs, and he's going to have to weigh, hey, am I – you know, I think he's ready for the position. At the same time, he's also a young coach who's still still learning uh, the game, and, and, and we'll admit to that as well. So um, it'll be interesting how he values um, Golden State's current success versus, hey, going out and, and running his own show. So um, he's going to have a lot of interest. Um, you've got teams, uh, you know, like the New York Knicks, who you know obviously have a connection with Luke uh, through Phil Jackson. Um, there's going to be other possibilities for him as well. So it'll, it'll play itself out, and I'm curious to what will happen as well. So our listeners uh, will have the benefit of having seen tonight's game. We obviously do not. But uh, regardless of how that game goes, the next two games they play against them, they're almost certainly going to face each other in the playoffs. I think the entire basketball world will be disappointed if they don't. So the San Antonio Spurs was overlooked somewhat this season. They also have an incredible season just because of what Golden State is doing. But, I mean, how do you uh, head-to-head assess these teams over a seven-game series, which we're very likely to see um well it'll be it'll be very interesting how the matchups play out you you saw in the first two games some different some different nuances uh, take place in the first game tim duncan didn't play and the warriors won by 30 in the second game andrew bogut didn't play and the warriors barely lost uh, especially in their minds um, the warriors came out of that second game very confident uh, in terms of understanding that hey they were down andrew bogut uh, they were on the road, a place that they don't play well is at San Antonio. They haven't won a regular season uh, game there in, I don't know, 30-some-odd tries. Um, it's, I think they, they came away from that knowing that, hey, if certain plays had gone their way down the stretch, uh, they, they would have won. And uh, you know, they, they felt good coming out of that one. Uh, the first game obviously stuck in San Antonio's minds. They made adjustments. They stuck a Danny Green on Steph Curry, and, and Steph Curry ended up having – uh, not his best shooting night, uh, one of the worst probably this season, I recall. And they made the adjustment from having a Kawhi Leonard, um, you know, matchup on on Curry, um, in which Curry dominated, uh, you know, in that first matchup. So it's going to be kind of a lot of moving parts, and, you know, I'm curious to see what will happen tonight because it'll – uh, possibly set the tone for, for what happens later on. Well, we are all certainly very excited to see that series, which almost uh, certainly is going to happen this season, and that is that is the route to the championship for sure. Well, Diamond, I really appreciate your time, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. As I said before, anybody who's not following you on Twitter should definitely do so, um, especially if they're fans of basketball. How can uh, readers find your work and find you on Twitter? Uh, yeah, they can uh, follow me on Twitter at diamond eighty three. And uh, they can always read my coverage at uh, the San Jose Mercury News, uh, Bay Area News Group. So uh, appreciate the time. Appreciate you having me. Closing time. Guys, I absolutely love this episode. We had a great conversation with Tyler Sober talking about like uh, the new NFL streaming deal that's going on with Twitter, wearable technologies in Major League Baseball. And then Diamond Layung just absolutely killed it, I thought, with the uh, the Golden State Warriors conversation. Kevin, credit to you for getting that. Uh, but also, we want to thank uh, Dolores Lozano for joining us inside the We Dessert studio. And this is actually her second appearance on the podcast. And uh, Dolores, we appreciate you joining us this week. And also, we hear that you have a new and exciting job job coming up tell us about it so starting next week I will be the communications coordinator for the Houston Super Bowl committee so I'm really excited with that I'll be dealing with like media relations press releases newsletters so I'm gonna gain a lot of experience and I'm 
happy to start and I'm super excited for Super Bowl 51. Well, my ask for you right now is uh, we were actually talking about it this last Super Bowl week, but our goal for Super Bowl 51 is for the Weekly Brew podcast to be on Radio Row. So we need you to make that happen for us. Like I said, I'm the queen of finessing. That's going to happen. Mark that down. April 11th, Dolores Lozano said that the Weekly Brew podcast is going to be on Radio Row for Super Bowl 51. So I'm excited about that. Kevin, Jeremy, what did you guys think about this episode? Well, uh, we celebrate the successes of all the people in our podcast family. Dolores, you're a part of the family now, of course. You're absolutely welcome. And uh, Adam Coleman, who's been on the show a couple of times, a good friend of ours, uh, was at HCN a long time ago. I took his job, as we well know, when he moved on to bigger and better things. And he's once again moved on to bigger and better things. He's now covering, uh, he's the prep sports, I guess, editor and in covering Rice um, for the Houston Chronicle. So congratulations to Adam Coleman. Everyone who knows Adam knows that he deserves that, and we're all thrilled for him. So a lot of success is being celebrated. None of them mine, but uh, my time will come. Jeremy, what about you? All except for the low point, talking about Baylor again. I uh, had a great time podcasting. Um, I'm trying to fill my sports boredom here going into the post-football and everything else season. So um, I might hit up an Astros game with you guys and see, uh, take a chance on, that they might impress me. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to actually documenting this experience to almost like I should like periscope it to show Jeremy's like first experience at a baseball game. Um, I don't know. Kara might be more interested in a baseball game than you, but uh, we will definitely make that happen either this week or sometime in the near future. But again, we had a great episode today and we thank everyone for listening. And again, you can follow all of our content on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram. Just search Weekly Brewcast. And you can also find us now on YouTube, search Weekly Brewcast as well. But we had a great episode. Again, thanks to Tyler Soper for joining us and Diamond Leung for joining us. Also, thanks to Dolores Lozana for joining us at the We Dessert Studio. Uh, we, we had fun with this episode, and we hope you enjoyed it as well. But for my co-hosts this week, Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton, I'm Austin Staten. We'll see you next week. And guys, remember to brew responsibly. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 